We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Episode 284 of The Bowery Boys. Scott Joplin in New York. A Ragtime Mystery. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we have a musical mystery to investigate. The surprising story of Scott Joplin, the king of ragtime and his years in New York City. Did I hear you say a musical mystery? (laughs) A toe-tapping musical mystery, Greg, because this show is going to be filled with ragtime. But Greg, I'm going to predict that when I say the name Scott Joplin, you think of Mm -hmm. this. Obviously, that is the entertainer, the beloved song entertainer. Every time I hear that, Tom, I just think of a handsome Paul Newman in a fedora sitting in front of a poker table (laughs) in the movie movie The Sting. Yes, um, many people do. Many other people um, think of ice cream trucks. And then (laughs) some of us have like flashbacks to grade school talent shows um, and try to perform that. Oh, sure, sure. Well, The Entertainer might be Joplin's best-known hit today, but it wasn't his biggest hit when he moved to New York in 1907, and we're going to get to that story in a minute. Now, Tom, as you know, I was born and raised in Missouri Mm -hmm. and proudly claimed Scott Joplin as one of their own. Now, he wasn't born in Missouri, but he did spend most of his, I would say, like most important years there, but much lesser known were his final years that were spent here in New York. During the years, however, that he did spend here in New York, he was on a mission to produce something that was totally different, something that was totally new. 
and something that he felt uniquely qualified to compose and produce. And yet, after living here for a decade, he would die almost unnoticed by the public. Hmm, that's mysterious. Now, we read a lot of obituaries on this show, usually at the end of shows, mm-hmm. uh, when we talk about the p- great lives of people who lived here. Now, did the New York Times publish an obit when he died? Oh, no. No mention in the New York Times. But then, just as mysterious, why didn't people remember him a hundred years ago? But they do now, more than a century after his death. I mean, he is still showing up in popular culture beyond the Stingreg. He's still showing up like today, even a couple weeks ago in the Grammy Awards. Alicia Keys even played Joplin oh, yeah. uh, on two pianos at the same time. Oh, yeah. I, saw, I mean, I saw that. I mean, Alicia Keys, always a good thing. And paired with Scott Joplin is perfection. <laughs> but let's go back here for just a second and just reacquaint ourselves with ragtime itself, the music scene. Uh, surrounding ragtime. When did Joplin move to New York? Uh, Well, he arrived here in 1907, uh, which was, of course, an exciting time for the music business in New York. We've discussed this very particular period in popular music in some of our recent shows. We did Tin Pan Alley, and then, of course, our early Broadway history show from a few years back. But basically, before radio, and obviously way before TV, there were many families who entertained themselves by playing music at home on their pianos. Right, and they played all kinds of music. They, they played classical arrangements. Some played like hymns and church music. But people played a lot of, you know, sentimental parlor songs. There were comedy pieces. There were a lot of waltzes. And much of this was being published by music publishers in New York's Tin Pan Alley, which was centered around 28th Street from Broadway to 6th Avenue, just a little bit below Herald Square. But in the... 1890s, a new musical form exploded onto the scene, a form that had a toe-tapping, syncopated beat. It was distinctly American, and it was called Ragtime. But here's the twist for, for our show, for our listeners. The hotbed of Ragtime actually wasn't New York. It was coming from the Midwest and was centered around St. Louis, Missouri. And notably... Ragtime was coming from the African-American musical tradition. Uh, the new music had, its, had roots in black folk melodies. Um, but then these, these melodies had a completely new rhythm. It was an exciting syncopated rhythm, you know, where there was a lot of action that was happening on the offbeat So back to Joplin here for a second. Yes, sorry. I got off on musical theory. (laughs) This show is going to look into how someone at the height of his career moves to New York and dies a decade later, mostly forgotten. Right, because we usually tell the opposite story. Somebody arrives and makes it in New York. But here, he arrives famous and loses it. But we obviously know who Scott Joplin is today. He he gets some renown, I guess, many decades after his death. Yeah, how did that happen? And there is one more kind of side mystery to all of this, and this one is perhaps the strangest of all of them. Scott Joplin was African-American. His, his father had actually been enslaved, and he came from really humble origins and achieved 
musical greatness. And yes, uh, because he was, you know, he became renowned and famous in Missouri. We actually learned all about him and his African-American roots in school. Right. You did back in Missouri. Uh Uh-huh. But as I've been working on the show, I've discussed Joplin with dozens of people. And I would say, Greg, that more than half of them, way more than half of them, actually, didn't realize that he was black. Like, Hmm. why is that? Why has his story been kind of forgotten? And that is really strange. So, so Tom, take us back to Missouri to when he got started here. You want me to take you to Missouri? Weren't you just there? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not going back there right now. I mean, metaphorically. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm ready to take you there quite literally, Greg. Oh. Because I am going to take this episode on the road to investigate the life and the music of Scott Joplin and figure out exactly what happened when he got to New York. First stop, we're going to the town of Sedalia, Missouri. Part one, Maple Leaf. So my flight took me to St. Louis, and here I rented a car and drove 190 miles straight west. Along the way, naturally, I was blasting Scott Joplin's music, including this piece, his first great hit, The Maple Leaf Rag. Amazingly, it was published not in New York or even in St. Louis, but in this town that we're headed to in the middle of Missouri, Sedalia. The performance we're listening to is by Richard Dowling, a classical pianist whose repertoire includes a lot of Joplin. I called him while he was on the road in California to ask him what's so special about the Maple Leaf Rag, because there were already other rags out there. Well, Maple Leaf is is a phenomenon. It sold about 250,000 copies in his lifetime. It's never gone out of print. Um, not that music is printed that much anymore today, but it's always been played. It's been recorded dozens of times. Maple Leaf has a propulsive quality to it. it the balance of it. There's so many technical things I could I could explain to you about it. It it doesn't have a melody yet. It does have a melody. I mean, it's basically patterns, but patterns that people can recognize and latch onto. They have different tunes. They may have a different sensibility, but the form and the, the structure and the presentation and the propulsiveness is basically the same. He helped codify the form. That's one mm-hmm. of the major things he did. So on the surface, it just appears like it's an improvised piece. But once you start digging underneath, you start to say, oh, my goodness, this is so balanced. It's so perfect. Somebody obviously worked on this and is presenting this in a finished product and doesn't want it tinkered with because it works perfectly if you just play it. (laughs) (laughs) But rewinding just a bit, Scott Joplin wasn't born in Sedalia. He was born in 1867 or 68, probably in Texas. He spent most of his young years in the town of Texarkana, a town on the Texas-Arkansas border. His father had formerly been enslaved, although his mother was freeborn, and she cleaned homes for a living. 
As a child, Scott showed talent for the piano, and there are stories that he'd play piano in houses while his mother was cleaning. Now, in Texarkana, there was a German-born music teacher named Julius Weiss, who gave the young Scott lessons and, and taught him about European music and art, and probably had a major impact on Scott's life and career. Scott Joplin would get out of Texas, he'd head to high school for a while in Sedalia, and then move to Sedalia in the 1890s to continue his studies there and to work as a professional musician. Which brings us to Sedalia, a town between St. Louis and Kansas City that was booming in the 1870s and 80s because of the railroad. Several railroad lines crossed in Sedalia, making it a really profitable business hub. And that, in turn, spawned a thriving, well, amusement district to keep all those businessmen and farmers sufficiently entertained. There were all kinds of places for them to spend their money. Of course, respectable music halls, but also plenty of saloons and bars and, of course, brothels. And notably, nearly all of those places employed piano players. Now, Sedalia today has a charming historic downtown. Uh, there are dozens of buildings from the late 19th and early 20th centuries that are still standing, including some that had been the bars in which Joplin played. I checked into an old grand hotel that was uh, constructed in the 1920s called the Hotel Bothwell. It's located directly across the street from the county courthouse in the middle of town along Ohio Avenue, which is the main north-south commercial drag. Now, a few blocks north of the hotel, there are train tracks that bisect the town. A century ago, these tracks divided the African-American neighborhood north of the tracks from the white neighborhood south of the tracks. But just along the south side of the tracks, along Main Street, this strip was open to everyone because here were most of the town's saloons and brothels and piano players. I headed over to the restored train station, which today serves as Sedalia's visitor center and museum, where Kathleen Boswell, who served for many years on Sedalia's Scott Joplin Ragtime Festival board, met up with me to discuss Joplin's time in Sedalia. So I have the great pleasure now of sitting down with Kathleen Boswell, and we're sitting here in the the former station house of the Katy Railroad, which is now Sedalia's Visitor Center. Hello, Kathleen. Hello there. Glad to speak with you. Could you tell me about where we're sitting? It's this beautiful restored station. It's 123 years old, and most of it is original. We were so lucky it got saved just in time, and it's been about 19 years that it's been restored and open for the visitor center and museum. And where we're sitting right now is the former ticket office? Yes, ticket office and telegraph office. This would have been really the heartbeat of the building. And you said that the, the station here would have opened in the 1880s? Yes, it was in the 1880s. And so when Scott Joplin came here from Texas, he probably came on the MKT Railroad because its whole point was to serve the West by going south and unloading the ship's there at the port in Texas and bringing the things up instead of doing the Mississippi River. So this is the railroad that Joplin would have used. And Sedalia in the 1890s when he came here um, had a number of railroads, right? This was a boom time. This this really was. And Sedalia was truly created because of the railroad coming. And, and what are these trains bringing? Well, 
one of the big things early on and just before Joplin would have been coming here would have been the cattle. Mm. So instead of having to make them walk up to Kansas or originally here, we were the original end of the railroad, the TV show Rawhide, they are coming to Sedalia. So as the railroads went farther west and then south, they could load the cows quicker and they didn't have to walk all the way. Wow. Yeah, I guess taking the train for a cow is a lot faster than walking. Yes. So he moves here in 1894 about? We don't know exactly, but yes, right in the mid-90s and worked around here. We have a lot of anecdotal stories about him playing in different bars, saloons, brothels, any place there was a piano and he could earn 50 cents, he'd play. And, and there were so many of those because it was this boom time. Yes. And, and the main reason he came to Sedalia was the founder of Sedalia gave his name to a college. It was called the George R. Smith College for Negroes. And one of the main things that this school did was music. And Joplin knew how to play the music. He heard it in his head, but he didn't know well enough how to write it down. Because by this point, he had been touring around with, uh, with quartets and, you know, he'd been all over the place, all over the country. All over the country. He was classically trained. And then he also did cornet and several other smaller instruments as well as the piano. So in the 1890s then, here in Sedalia, he's living with, in different boarding houses or with, with families. With families. And that would have been very standard at the time. These students that would have come up here, families just took in somebody and maybe they charged them a dollar a week or something like that for room and board. And one of the other really little known facts is Sedalia was a railroad town, but we also had a lot of the arts and we had four music publishers in Sedalia at the turn of the century. How is that possible? How could a small town like this support? Yeah, we just don't even think. But Joplin had had the Maple Leaf Rag written and wanted to get it published. But when he took it into John Stark, one of the major publishers here in town, he he laughed and said, there's too many notes in this. Nobody can play this. (laughs) He's got kind of a point there. Yes. And what the music houses usually did was had a young lady playing the piano, especially on Saturdays when they would have a lot of traffic in the stores. And so somebody would say, well, I think I want this piece of music, but I don't know if I can play it or not. Let me hear it. And so the girls would sit down and play a little bit. And so when they could play the ragtime, then they proved to people that there weren't too many notes. So these young women who worked in these music stores here in Sedalia could play his rags? Yes, they could. And they still didn't really want to take a chance on it because usually what happened was the publisher paid maybe $50 to the performer, and then the music was his. He got all the profit. He didn't want to pay out the money, and one of Joplin's fans was a young lawyer, and he said, how about this? Pay him as the copies sell. So they signed a contract that John Stark would pay Scott Joplin one penny per copy of the Maple Leaf Rag. As far as we can find, that's the first example of a royalty payment. To a performer. And it happened here in he, Sedalia. <laughs> on 18, Ohio Street. On Ohio Street, 1899, here in Sedalia. Did John Stark, the, the music publisher and owner of this music store here, did he know that Maple Leaf Rag was different, that there was something really special about it? Well, I think he, he knew it was different because it was hard. And 
he was very skeptical at first. I know that one of the places, you mentioned that on, on Main Street there were all these brothels and clubs and saloons, and one of them, of course, uh, that opened in 1898 was the Maple Leaf Club. Do we know if the Maple Leaf Rag was named for the club, or is it the other way around, or what's going on there? Well, that's one that's really highly debated. and In we, the ragtime world. In the ragtime world, yes. <laughs> uh, the club itself was not just a building, it was a group of men. And so I think the club existed, and then he wrote the piece of music kind of to honor them. Okay, because he was in Wood throughout his career, like dedicate songs to different yes. people. Yes, and, and the Maple Leaf site is where we now know where it is, but the building was not anything special and kind of was starting to fall down and had to be taken down quite some time ago, probably in the 50s. And it was a kind of the wide open old west in a lot of ways there were brothels everywhere and um, I'm sure he played in quite a few of those but the brothels would employ pianists yes. oh yes you had to have something in the lobby for for the people who were waiting <laughs> keep them keep them there yes keep them there we don't want them to go to the neighboring place uh, and I imagine though that the that the respectable citizens of Sedalia we're not too thrilled about that. No, they weren't. And to me, that's the heartbreaking part for Scott Joplin. He knew he played in bars and brothels, but his music, the sheets of music were sold to the homes. He wanted a legitimacy for his music, and he never really got it in his lifetime. And that makes me so sad for Joplin that he didn't ever get the respect that he deserved. So in 1901, after publishing a number of rags here, after the Maple maple Leaf, Joplin decides to move to the big city. He leaves Sedalia and he heads off to St. Louis. Do you have an idea, a good idea, why he decided to leave? Well, he had been doing small tours and stuff and coming back to Sedalia, and he was hoping to find a bigger venue. Uh, the small towns around here, it didn't pay enough. And so if you could do a bigger concert in St. Louis, you could get more money per night and not have to ride the train and take so long between. And John Stark had also moved to St. Louis. His publisher. The publisher was there. Do you have any sense of what Joplin's lasting legacy is? You know, here, here we are 102 years after he dies. What did he give to American culture? Well... We often say that ragtime gave birth to jazz and the blues, which also led to country and western, and certainly there's a lot of rock and roll that has incorporated the ragtime stuff. And I like to say every musician owes Joplin a debt of gratitude and John Stark for signing that contract to get that royalty. So every musician that gets royalties, that's where it comes from. You need to say thank you for Joplin and Stark creating that method of payment. Kathleen, thank you so much. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. And come to Sedalia anytime. We love having guests. Part two, The Entertainer. My drive from Sedalia to St. Louis took about three hours. Probably longer than it used to take for Scott to actually take the train between the two towns a hundred years ago. But anyway, you really don't have any choice anymore. 
The Scott Joplin House, which is officially called the Scott Joplin House State Historic Site, was one of his former residences in St. Louis. It's located just west of downtown along Delmar Boulevard. It's a handsome two-story brick row house. It was likely constructed in the 1860s. He boarded here with a family from about 1901 to about 1903, and during that time, he wrote some of the biggest ragtime hits of his career, including The Entertainer. Now, I should also add that he was already composing opera at this time. And in fact, in 1903, he set out to tour with an opera that he had written called A Guest of Honor. Unfortunately, the experience was a complete disaster for Joplin, as his business partner backed out at the last moment while they were out on the road. His possessions, including the opera itself, were seized by creditors, and the opera closed before the thing ever even opened. When I arrived at the Joplin house, Brian Cather, who works there, was in the middle of giving a tour of the, uh, the restored living quarters. That was followed, of course, by lots of Joplin music played on the downstairs player piano, which included this piano roll of the entertainer that we're listening to. Afterwards, we sat down to talk. So... It seems that he lived in several different places in St. Louis while he was here. And here we are sitting, actually, at the Missouri Historic Site, which is one of those homes. Yes. He lived here, presumably from 1901, till sometime before February of 1903. And, and he had this huge year in 1902 where The Entertainer came out and, it's, and several other big ones. Those came out while he was living here. Presumably. I mean, what we have for dates for these pieces are copyright dates. Oh, right. We don't necessarily have composition, composition. dates. So, so really kind of like the big St. Louis years are between 1901 and until the fair. Well, what, I tell, what, I, what I tell people about Joplin's time in St. Louis is that, yes, he was in St. Louis, but it was more of a case that during the, his time in St. Louis, St. Louis was a base of operations for him, mm-hmm. not necessarily a place you live like most people think of living in St. Louis, but rather as a place that you base your operations, a place you travel from, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're... His home base. His home base, rather than a place that you spend all your time in. And to place it into St. Louis at the time, St. Louis was a really exciting place to be in at the time. Oh, my gosh. Um, St. Louis, there was lots of other ragtime going on here, too, black and white, before Joplin ever got here. In fact... And I literally laughed out loud sitting at my desk when this popped up in a in a newspaper search a week ago, a little blurb out of a Kansas City paper that was quoting a New York paper, um, a little blurb, and I'm paraphrasing, but it said basically, since St. Louis is claiming to be the birthplace of ragtime, she has done the rest of the country a grave disservice by not letting the rest of us no, so that it could be quarantined in time. <laughs> so there's some pushback. So to- I mean, ragtime, ragtime was the original music that's corrupting American youth. Mm-hmm. Everything that you've ever heard bad about rap music, mm-hmm. or if you're old enough to remember bad about rock and roll or mm-hmm. whatever, was said about ragtime and worse. 
There were plenty of municipalities 120 years ago that absolutely had laws on the books saying that, that you could get arrested and thrown in jail for playing ragtime. What role does does race play in that? Because ragtime was seen as coming was, from it, the African-American it, it, community. It, it was, and it was seen as this this radical, I mean, the same things as they say about rap. It's, oh, it's not really music. And, you know, it's all rhythm and there's nothing else to it. And it's it's frenzied state drives people to us, uh, all of that craziness. Mm-hmm. But it was absolutely racist. And it was a big, the Afrocentric elements were seen as primitive. Mm. Right. And, and Joplin in his career would also face pushback from members of the African-American community. So, I mean, there was always that element of the proper society mm-hmm. in both white and African-American society that saw that, these elements as, but that was the beauty of Joplin's approach to his music as he was able to take these Afrocentric cultural concepts, you know, syncopation, close harmony, and multiple rhythm patterns, and marry them so well to a Western European classical music concept. And he was not the only person doing this, but he, he did it in a way that, that was more more nearly a classical style than something purely for either the stage or pop consumption. So when he's here and he's composing these these pieces, like The Entertainer, are they breaking over into the American mainstream? Are they mainstream popular hits? Not huge ones. Really? Yeah. Now, Entertainer... Maple Leaf. Maple Leaf was. The Entertainer... Now, the interesting thing is... The player piano roll companies, he could sell to them and they would issue it because they're looking for another Maple Leaf. They're looking for another big hit. Mm. Those original roles today are pretty scarce. As the, as it turns out, I've, I'm aware of only maybe one or two phonograph records of anything other than Maple Leaf that were issued even remotely close to Joplin's lifetime. So Maple Leaf was the big hit. The other was well, they were not nearly the big hits that Maple Leaf was. And they were, and really the the entertainer didn't come wildly popular until the movie The Sting came out in 1973. And we're listening to some of these great piano rolls here. Um, and they're, they're so fun. And they also seem so impossible. Can we talk about that for a second? These were produced mechanically. That is to say that they weren't necessarily a recording of a person playing them at the right, piano. Right, right. Some were. Um, there was the technology to, by 19, a little after 1910, to sit down and record. The problem was that technology required such an enormous amount of editing that by the end of the process, it was really kind of not really that person's playing after all. And what they found was by maybe 1920, it was actually easier to create an arrangement that would sound like a person playing. And you could also fill in where it sounded thin. So they could take all of those notes that no pianist could ever play, slap it on a roll, and there you go. Yeah, because I'm I'm watching this piano work very hard, right, with these rolls. There's there's like 17 fingers down. Yeah, there's more than 10 fingers playing. Yeah, and that's for a reason. So St. Louis is is an exciting place to be at this time. We've got a World's Fair that is ready about to, to happen, uh, yes. is about to happen. 1903 becomes 1904. Right. What role does ragtime play in all of that? It's interesting. Um, 
African Americans were um, not permitted to be official performers at the fair. Now they could be hired. the The fair had something called the Pike, which was the the essentially the amusement and concession area. They could work there, um, and some of the the entertainers, like some of Joplin's friends, worked in some of the entertainment venues there. Unfortunately, um, it was it was a very racially, to our modern eyes, a very racist fair. The whole point of the, the 1903 fair was to show the superiority of the pinnacle of American and Western European culture. And they brought in, you know, folks from all over the world to essentially show them as inferior to Western European American culture. Wow. And so, yeah, it was rough. And, and I'm sorry, did you just say that that black performers were not permitted as to— official fair performers, right. So Joplin did not perform at—in fact, he wasn't even in town. He did compose a rag for the fair called the Cascades. Um, as it turns out, the Cascades was one of about a half a dozen ragtime pieces that were written for the fair by various folks. I think Cascades is great because you can you can literally hear in the music you can hear the water trickling down. Yes, yeah, uh, it, it's the fountain. It's a very evocative piece of music. One of the places he was he was traveling to in 1904 was back to Little Rock, Arkansas, where right. he was married. Right. He after his first opera fell apart and he got stranded. He went down to see mom in Little Rock, and it's there that he met a woman named Freddie Alexander and fell in love with her. I think my favorite part about the the romance between Scott and Freddie is that he didn't just offer her flowers, he wrote a beautiful piece for her called yes, The Chrysanthemum. The Chrysanthemum. He dedicated it to her. Before they married, um, it bears a dedication to Miss Freddie Alexander of Little Rock, Arkansas. And that was, by all indications, the equivalent of an engagement present. And if, then, if you're if you're Scott Joplin, that's a great. I mean, that's how you do it. That's yeah. how you do it. Yeah. What do you think of uh, the chrysanthemum? Oh, it's one of the best examples of him composing ragtime as a classical style, as opposed to being a hard-driving dance piece. You could dance to it, but it's more like a minuet. It's a very proper, almost a dainty piece. So they were married in 1904 in Little Rock. Then they, they traveled around as he took on some gigs on the way back yeah, to Sedalia. on the ba- way back to Sedalia, he was taken on gigs, playing in various places. She develops a cold as they're traveling, apparently. The cold turned into pneumonia. Causing them to stay in Sedalia. Yeah, they stayed in Sedalia. The intention appears to have been to spend a fair amount of time in Sedalia. And it's in Sedalia on September 10th, 1904, that Freddie dies. Correct. And Scott leaves Sedalia. He disappears, then turns up back here in St. Louis pretty early in like March of 1905. The first piece he publishes after Freddie's death is back in St. Louis, and it's a piece called Bethina Concert Waltz, and it's a gorgeously stunning, a very mournful piece. It's got a, uh, a very melancholy tone to it. Um, And there's some speculation that this was his expression of mourning for his wife's death. It's so beautiful and so sad. It's a gorgeous piece of music. So in 1905, he starts visiting, among other places, Chicago. And back and forth, Chicago, St. Louis. And the other thing he's doing up there is he's publishing up there. Oh. And that's important. So Joplin's going up there to be with his friends, hang out with his friends, but also because he's got much better publishing opportunities up there than he does here. 
And and then by the summer of 1907, he's even done with Chicago. He's moving to New York. Yeah. In 1907, he leaves the Midwest. And he also has a new a new project in mind, something right. he's been kicking around. He has a new opera. He's going to try opera again. And the opera Tremonitia is a fascinating thing. Premise is, then, that this is an opera written specifically for African-American audiences. And was there an African-American opera audience in 1910, 1911, 1912? That's an interesting concept to think about. I, I don't think that, it even today, white audiences often don't fully understand the nuanced details of this work. And if they're not today, I really doubt they would have been a century ago. Yeah. And if you look at the increasing complexity that his piano music has developed, I'm convinced he really was was striving to create not just an African-American opera, but an entire body of African-American classical music. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to be on The Bowery Boys. I had as much fun. I hope you did, too. <laughs> Bye-bye. And so, Greg... In 1907, in search of better opportunities and at the very top of his professional life, Joplin decided to join many of his uh, ragtime acquaintances and move to New York. To make it even bigger here on New York's famed Tin Pan Alley? Maybe working on Tin Pan Alley to pay the bills, but now he had an even greater dream. He wanted to produce a great American opera, maybe actually the first great American opera in all caps, and one that would be infused with at least elements of ragtime. So with these grand ambitions, it sounds like Joplin is ready to, to embrace New York. But would New York embrace Joplin back? We'll get to Scott Joplin in New York after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. 
In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay. Part 3. Tremonitia. So it's the summer of 1907, and Scott Joplin has moved to New York to make it big with his new project, the, the opera he's, he's been working on, which he's named Tremonitia. We're listening to a recording of a piano roll of Tremonitia's finale, of real slow drag. And so where was Scott Joplin living at this time? Was it close to Tin Pan Alley around that area? He was living in a boarding house actually just one block away from it uh, at 128 West 29th Streets. Today, it's a double tree by Hilton. But at the time, it was a boarding house for African Americans uh, that was very popular with musicians. Now, remember that his old publisher, John Stark, had moved to New York by then as well and was located a few blocks away on West 23rd Street uh, near Lexington Avenue. Tom, this whole time you've been talking about John Stark, the yeah. only thing I can think about is Game of Thrones. <laughs> For people who watch Game of Thrones, that name will trigger memories in people's faces. But, okay, um, a- so you're anyway. like outing me as somebody who doesn't watch Game of Thrones because all I think of is that publishing contract he signed with Scott Joplin. <laughs> yeah, and I'm over here in Westeros. But anyway, if, if Scott Joplin was such a successful composer when he moves here and everyone knows Maple Leaf Rag, this major hit... Why does he want to compose an opera? Like, why doesn't he keep making money, making more rag songs? Well, he kept composing rags, too. And and by the way, none of the subsequent rags would really match the commercial success of mm. his Maple Leaf rag. And he's really focused here on getting his grand opera published and produced. Right. Which wasn't going so well for him. Now, I met up a couple days ago with Ed Berlin, the Joplin scholar and the author of the book, King of Ragtime, Scott Joplin and His Era. He has been studying 
Joplin for decades. And if there's anyone who can explain to us what happened in New York, it's Ed. Why do you think that Joplin actually moved to New York in the first place? I, I think he moved to New York in hopes of getting his opera, Tremonisha, performed. He started showing his opera around immediately, and he was advised to make a number of changes, which he set upon doing. Um, but I, I find it so interesting that, like, it's, you know, 1907 when he moves here, and then for a few years, you know, the word's getting around that he's working on this great opera. That's right. But yet he's still composing ragtime music, and in some ways, he's actually getting better. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was reported in 1909 by John Stark's son in St. Louis that Joplin was in New York studying music, that he had a teacher. Now, we're not certain who this teacher was. It might have been Bruto Giannini, with whom he's, we know he was studying in 1913. And Bruto Giannini was an opera coach. He certainly could have helped Joplin in, in writing a good opera. And, and do we think that what, that formal what, training was helping his rags? I, I think so. I think so. I think his rags become more sophisticated. He is trying to do things that are not generally done in rags. Do you have any um, hypotheses about why he felt a need to write an opera? When it, it seems like he, he comes here, he's successful as a ragtime composer. So why shake it up? He wanted to be recognized as a substantial composer, not just a ragtime composer. Ragtime was looked down upon by much of society. So he wanted to show that uh, he was a true artist and he could compose operas as well. You say it was, ragtime was looked down upon by some, for different reasons, by different people. Yes, of course. I mean, there was certainly the racial reason. Right. But he was... So after other composers gave Joplin feedback on Tremonisha, he went back to work on it for a couple of years while he continued to put out new rags, and he tried out different music publishers. Finally, he settled on a new publisher called Seminary Music. Now, Ed did some digging here, and he made quite a discovery. Turns out that Seminary Music was owned by and shared an office with Ted Snyder Music. Ted Snyder Music under a different name. And their office was on 38th Street. That's right, yes. Um, and w so why is it important to this story? Well, there was a young lyricist working for Ted Snyder named Irving Berlin, who's oh. not related to me at all. <laughs> well, I am not related to him. But there was this story that uh, Scott Joplin had brought uh, his opera Tremonitia to Ted Snyder Music, and he handed it over to Irving Berlin. And a few months later, or a few weeks later, Berlin returned it to him, said, sorry, we can't use it. And then when and Irving... He didn't like it. They didn't, they didn't think it was... Well, they just didn't... Nobody really wants to publish a long opera. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, uh, a, f a few weeks later or a few months later, Irving Berlin published Alexander's Ragtime Band. And the verse of it contains a theme that is very, very similar to the final number in uh, Tremonitia. And the story was that Joplin, when he heard Alexander's ragtime band, yelled, that's my tune. Hold on a second. Irving Berlin plagiarized Scott Joplin? Well, Joplin believed that he had. 
because there was a little item in a magazine also that said, uh, Scott Joplin is looking for Irving Berlin. Joplin is hot about something. <laughs> we It's hard to say. Yeah, where does that leave us? Because that's kind of an explosive right. claim. Well, right? it's just... It's just the beginning of a theme. Like, Irving, Irving Berlin could have heard someone in the office playing it from Joplin's opera and stuck in his mind. And as he's writing something, he uses it, unconsciously taking something from Joplin. But Irving Berlin, I mean, he was composing for, what, 60, 70 years, all new stuff. He didn't have to copy from anyone. But it could be that in this, in this case, he had an idea that he had taken from Joplin. We cannot be sure about that. Irving Berlin's Alexander's Ragtime Band came out in early spring 1911. And Joplin, after unsuccessfully searching for a publisher, self-published the piano score of Trimonisha in May 1911, just a few weeks later. It was a huge expense for him. Do do you think I I mean I've seen Tremonisha um, referred to as the first American the first true American opera? Well, no, it is not the first true American opera, but Tremonisha is the earliest American opera that is performed with any frequency still today. Yeah, there is much about the music that is extremely appealing. Yes. Not throughout the entire opera. If you see the entire opera, it can get pretty boring at times because it is dramatically weak. He wrote the book and the libretto? He he wrote everything. You know, it could be he was trying to be like Wagner. He he wrote the music. He he wrote the lyrics. uh, He wrote the book. He gave stage directions. He felt that one person should be in charge of all aspects of the work of art. Why was he so determined to get this thing published and produced? One thing is that it would make his reputation as a real artist, not just a ragtime composer. But there were other personal aspects to it. He started writing this opera in 1905, a few months after Freddie Alexander died. And he definitely connected the opera with her. He says that the opera takes place in September 1884. That's probably the month in, well, it was definitely the year that Freddie was born. There are other connections. So they're celebrating the publication, the event of the publication of the opera. That's right. uh, With the party. And it seems like he gets some positive press at the beginning, some good coverage of, of its publication. The American Musician and Art Journal gave it a rave review, almost a full-page review, uh, and it was nothing but raves, saying that this is so much more of an American opera than anything that had been published previously. But in short, for a number of years, he's trying to raise money, he's trying to raise interest, he's trying to get his show produced, and it seems that people are not interested. Well, they are interested, but somehow it always falls through. A number of times, that he says he has an uh, ironclad contract that this is going to be produced, and it falls through. So he never heard his opera. He never heard his opera? No, he, ne- he never heard a, a real performance of his opera. He had put on a uh, performance where he played the piano himself, 
but it did not impress the backers who he had invited. Uh, one of his best friends, Sam Patterson, said about the opera, well, it has a lot of good tunes, but it's not a good opera. Again, the lack of a good drama is what hurt it. So things are also personally changing for him. By um, 1912, 1913, he's now living in Hell's Kitchen um, up at 252 West 47th Street. That's right, yes. And he's romantically involved with another woman, Miss Lottie Stokes. That's right, yes. When they were living together on 47th Street, they were renting an apartment, and then they also had boarders there. You know, it, it was the way of earning a little extra money. And then they moved to Harlem, and they had a few different residences. They were renting all of them. They didn't own any of them. But these were all boarding houses that she was running. Sometimes it was a bit more. She, she was known to rent them out to people who wanted to have illicit sex. Oh. This was before motels and so on. And she was known for doing that. You know, I was told by some old Tin Pan Alley people, maybe 20 years ago, that whenever they wanted to have girls for a party, they would call Lottie Joplin. She would be able to send them over. And and they moved up to Harlem in 1914 and into a home at 133 West 138th Street, which is just adjacent to what we today call Strivers Row. That's right. Yeah, she she lived in the area of Strivers Row. Was was Lottie the breadwinner for the family at this point? Because it seems like Scott's fortunes are kind of declining here. He's he's still composing, but he's also giving music lessons. He's trying to sell sheet music by mail. She was probably bringing in most of the money. Uh, Sam Patterson, Scott Joplin's good friend, said Scott did not know how to hold on to a dollar. He would spend anything he had. So she was bringing in the money. She had, uh, in one of her boarding houses, she would have mostly performers. And uh, they would talk about going over to Lottie's house and going down to the basement. This was after Scott Joplin had died. But going down to the basement and seeing his sheet music there, seeing his manuscripts, unpublished manuscripts there, including classical things. Uh, these were musicians. Willie the Lion Smith spoke of this. Willie the Lion was one of the great stride pianists. The last Joplin piece that was published while Scott was still living was his Magnetic Rag, which came out in 1914. And uh, it was a work he was very proud of. He listed it next to Maple Leaf Rag and next to Tremonitia. Uh, James P. Johnson, one of the great stride pianists, jazz pianists, used to play this at a time when nobody played it. Nobody even knew that piece, but James P. Johnson did. And uh, James P. Johnson said this was way ahead of its time, Magnetic Rag. And you can see, in, just in listening to Magnetic Rag, you can really hear how how his music had oh. become more complicated. Oh, it, it is it, it is much more complicated than any other rag. It does things that other rags don't do. You can see how he was trying to break the mold, as if a teacher was telling him, well, could you write a rag and doing it this way? You know, let's take the umpa out of the bass. Uh, let's have a phrase that's not four measures, but six measures. 
and he would do things like that in this rag. He also brings a little bit of blues into the rag, and it shows that he was certainly listening to what other people were doing. He was probably being influenced, as you write in your book, by the sounds of New York City, too. By the sound, by, by Yiddish theater. And yet at this time when some of his best stuff is coming out or most advanced, his his physical health is deteriorating. Oh, yeah. He, he, he's dying of syphilis. We're not certain how long he had syphilis. He could have had it for the past 15, 20 years or it might have been 10 or 5 years. We're not sure. But it was in the tertiary stage. And he knew what was going to happen. Many people had syphilis at that time, especially in the entertainment world. It was before the days of penicillin. There was no cure. Toward the end, well, U.B. Blake tells us the story that uh, he was with Joplin at an event, and they asked him to play piano, and he refused. Finally, they kept urging him to play, and he started playing, and U.B. said he played like a five-year-old. It was pitiful. And... Joplin said, you know, he, 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 he's got the dog. He's dying of it. He knows what's, what's coming. And in fact, uh, his uh, wife said toward the end, he started burning his manuscripts. Wait, why would he be burning his manuscripts? He just didn't want someone else to steal it. He was losing his mind. It was affecting his brain. He was fi finally in... January of 1917, he was hospitalized at Bellevue, and then he was uh, transferred to Manhattan State Hospital, which was a mental institution. And uh, that's where he died a month later. And he died on April 1st, that's 1917. Right. That's right. And was buried at St. Michael's Cemetery in Queens. He was buried in a community grave with two other people in uh, St. Michael's Cemetery in Queens. Um, why, why did he have that burial? Was there no money to, put, to give him his own, his yeah. own plot? Well, probably. Uh, if, if, if Lottie had the money, she probably didn't want to spend it. There, there was no marker at first. There was one person in the grave when he was put there, and then someone else was put in a few weeks later. And that's what it is. He's lying there with with two other people. Uh, and and there was, was there notice in the press that Scott Joplin, the great composer, uh, had passed? There was notices in the in the black press. Uh, New York Times made no mention of it. Uh, he was pretty much forgotten by that time. I mean, it, there was a there was a notice in the. Uh, in the Amsterdam News, a black newspaper, and it's clear that the writer of the notice didn't even know who Joplin was, just said he was an old-time entertainer. Part 4. Solace. Now, I had mentioned at the beginning of the show that many non-ragtime people I spoke to about Joplin didn't realize he was African-American. This surprised me um, at first, but it didn't surprise most of the experts with whom I spoke for this show. Here's Richard Dowling, 
uh, the classical pianist who we heard at the beginning, who tours throughout the U.S. with an all-Joplin show that he calls Great Scott. I have talked to so many people, and I don't know that he's (laughs) African-American. Most of them don't. Right. That's why I insisted that his picture be put on the cover of my complete Joplin three CD set. And when I do my Great Scott concerts around the country, uh, most venues have a digital projector and a screen. But before I start the program, the image that I have up on the screen as people come into the hall is the cover of my Joplin three CD set. One of the main reasons I have that up there is because his picture is big on the cover. And so up on that gigantic screen, you know, it says the complete work, piano works of Scott Joplin and my name is down at the bottom, but it's his picture on the cover. And so many people come up to me after and say, I had no idea that Scott Joplin was black. Well, that's why I've got that up there, you know, because how would they know? They don't know anything about him. So it's just a case maybe of people not knowing Scott Joplin, or they know his music. They know the entertainer. Right. They, th- they, they think see, of the just, movie. <laughs> you've just answered the question. They don't know his name because they don't even know the name of the entertainer. They hear the entertainer. They go, oh, I love that. I love the sting. Right. It's not the sting. The sting is the movie. The entertainer is the name of the piece. It's not that people are racist. They're just ignorant. <laughs> They just simply don't know. They just don't know. That's why I put his picture on there, you know, because I I live in awe of this man. I think he was one of the greatest American composers up there with Gershwin. I also called up Reginald Robinson in Chicago. Reginald is an accomplished composer, musical historian, self-taught ragtimer, and he's a MacArthur Genius recipient. I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know that the, the, the melody that I heard on the ice cream truck was written by an African-American. And when I go to schools, uh, that's one of the things I point out. And I show his picture, too, so children can, you know, wherever I go, I show his picture so people can, you know, children and, and teachers, some teachers don't even know uh, that, you, you know, who he was. And so I think that's important, Yeah. Do you think that people just don't know because they just don't know who he is and Ragtime's kind of faded? I think that the, the music is by, viewed by a lot of people as old-timey, mm-hmm. old-timey silent movie, Charlie Chaplin music. <laughs> they, could, they, could, they line it up with, with silent movies. Even though that's and, like a decade or two off. they That's yeah, where they go. It was, ragtime music was played to silent movies. Mm-hmm. Th- that's only one place where the music was played you know it was played in saloons it was played at home it was you yeah know, it was played in other places but it's associated with that associated with the silent movies and um charlie chaplin and <laughs> you know right. i don't know how how could something like this have happened i mean how did this happen to scott joplin that's a good question uh, there are a lot of different theories. And I asked all of our guests the same question. And most of them agreed that it was actually a combination of factors. Ragtime was over and it was giving away to jazz. And then meanwhile, 
Joplin had spent all of his money getting Tremonisha published and trying to get it performed. And it turned out that New York just wasn't ready for it. Mind you, the Maple Leaf Rag was never completely forgotten. It would get performed and recorded in the decades after his death. There was something of a mini ragtime revival in the 40s, but that was actually just a blip. Ragtime was was again rediscovered in the 1960s by enthusiasts who lectured on it, and they started newsletters uh, that would give way to the Scott Joplin Ragtime Festival in Sedalia. Meanwhile, academic interest was growing. And in 1970, Joshua Rifkin, the classical pianist, recorded the album Piano Rags by Scott Joplin for Nonesuch Records. And that was a smash hit. It sold more than a million albums. And it led to additional Joplin recordings, including Gunther Scholler's 1973 Red Back Book album, which became another big hit. And all of this renewed ragtime enthusiasm led the film director, George Roy Hill, to choose Joplin's music for his 1973 film, The Sting, starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman in a madcap caper that, by the way, was set in the 1930s. But for the score, composer Marvin Hamlish adapted several Joplin tunes, including, of course, The Entertainer. The Sting was a sensation. It was a smash with the public and with critics, winning seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Score. And that piece in particular, The Entertainer, it was even a pop hit. Yeah, in, in May of 1974, that ragtime piece reached number three on the Billboard and the American Top 40 pop charts. That is crazy. And, <laughs> and there was a whole new generation of piano students, by the way, who were trying their best to try to learn to play Joplin. So whatever happened then to his opera, to Trimonisha, was it ever staged at all? Well, there, there would be concert performances of excerpts from Trimonisha in the 1960s and 1970s, but it would receive its first full staging at the Atlanta Memorial Arts Center in 1972. And then three years later, in 1975, the Houston Grand Opera would stage and record Trimonisha, orchestrated by Gunther Schuller. And we're listening to the Houston Grand Opera production's finale now, a real slow drag. This production would then open on Broadway at the Eurus Theater on October 20th, 1975, and later transfer to the Palace Theater to play another six weeks. And according to Ed Berlin, it was this production that led the Pulitzer Committee to award Joplin a special bicentennial Pulitzer Prize in 1976 for his contribution to American music. Joplin finally made it on stage in New York. And not just Tremonisha on Broadway, but Scott Joplin would eventually make it to Carnegie Hall. In fact, on the 100th anniversary of his death, on April 1st, 2017, 
Carnegie Hall's Wild Recital Hall was packed with Joplin enthusiasts who gathered to hear pianist Richard Dowling, who we've been speaking with on today's show, perform all 53 piano works by Scott Joplin in two concerts on the same day. And what was his final number? The finale from Tremonitia. Kathleen Boswell, who we spoke to back in Sedalia, was sitting in the audience. We, we talk about Carnegie Hall being the epitome of making it in the music world. And it took 100 years. But to have every single one of his 53 acknowledged pieces played in one day on the 100th anniversary of his death at Carnegie Hall, it's like, Joplin, you made it. <laughs> And so, Greg, that brings us to the end of our ragtime mystery. Although, there is just one more thing. Last month, on January 31st, 2019, the New York Times finally gave Scott Joplin an obituary, 102 years after his death. The obituary, written by Will Haygood, recounts Joplin's life in Sedalia, his time in St. Louis, his move to New York, Tremonitia, his death, and the revival. And it concludes, There is little doubt among musicians that Joplin, by elevating ragtime, played a major role in another American music phenomenon that emerged soon after he died. It would be called jazz. A huge thanks to all of the Joplin experts who joined us on today's show. We'd like to thank Kathleen Boswell from Sedalia's Scott Joplin Ragtime Festival. You can learn more about this year's festival, which runs from May 29th to June 1st at scottjoplin.org. Thank you to Brian Cather from the Scott Joplin House, historic site in St. Louis, to Ed Berlin, author of King of Ragtime, Scott Joplin and His Era, to composer, pianist, and historian Reginald Robinson, and to pianist Richard Dowling for his musical insights and for his performances. We want to give a special thanks to all of our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com. It's because of your help that we're able to produce the Barry Boys podcast. And, and to fly all over the country, by the way, and speak <laughs> <Yes>. to ragtime <laughs> experts. <laughs> In addition, on the entertainment front, we'll also have a new episode of the Barry Boys Movie Club in just a couple more weeks. The movie that we'll be talking about will be The Wiz. So join us and support the show at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. I like how we've gone from the maple leaf rag to the whiz. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today on this musical adventure. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay.